Good morning. All right, that's on. I just want to thank you all for your prayers. I know a number of you have been, told me that you've been praying for me and for this message. I appreciate that. I want to thank Sevi for the bulletin cover. She texted me the other night and said, what's your topic? And I said, well, it's the conscience. I don't know what kind of picture you're going to get for that. Well, I think this is perfect because our lives are kind of a series of questions. As soon as you answer one question, you've got another one to answer, and then another, and then another. And so, do we have a way that we can approach that uh, with God's help? And so I think that that's a, a good representation of what we're talking about. And I'd also like to thank the pastor for his texts of encouragement over the past week or two. Um, and see Don shaking his head here. I think he experienced the same thing. I'm sure others who have spoken have, have uh, been lifted up by the pastor um, in some of his favorite quotes that um, were really meaningful to me. Last year at this time, we were all focused on the story of Desmond Doss. You know the man, the hero of Hacksaw Ridge. We were waiting for that movie to come out. It was a, it was a great opportunity to talk to people. And I still have people wanting to return the book to me, and I, I say, no, you keep it, and you give it to somebody else. And so that book is still out there doing, doing its work. But he was a young man who stood up to the U.S. Army for what he believed was right based on the Bible. He felt compelled to serve, convicted he couldn't kill. He was convicted of the sacredness of the Sabbath. He felt compelled to save as many as possible. He even gave up his stretcher when he was wounded because he said, that guy needs it more than I do. He made many choices. He could have made others, and few would have faulted him. He could have stayed working in the shipyard there in in Newport News. But he followed his conscience. He was known as a conscientious objector, although he preferred the term conscientious cooperator. So what was this conscience that he followed? Why doesn't it work out this way for many people? Don't they have consciences too? So that brings us to the title of our sermon, which is, Can We Trust Our Conscience? And that's a good question that we have to answer, and we're going to talk more about that and see what the Bible has to say about it. But I just want to share with you a little bit about how I came to this topic in the first place. Back in July, our family spent some time with a young lady that we've known all of her life. She's quite proud of the fact that she's now an adult and occasionally reminds us of that fact. But unfortunately, she's been making some choices that uh, probably aren't the best. And there are those who are concerned about her. Near the end of our time with her, she was um, kind of going to one of those packs of cards that has kind of discussion starter questions on them. And, you know, what do you think about this? Or what's your favorite you know, Bluebird, I, I, I don't know, I don't have a good other example, but one of them that caught, and nobody was paying that much attention to it, until she came to the one that said, what is our most important freedom? She was probably thinking, or the one who wrote the, the question was probably thinking of things like the four freedoms that Franklin Roosevelt talked about. Freedom of speech, of worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear. In the moment, God gave me an answer. And I said, freedom of choice. 
freedom to make good choices or bad choices, which can mess up our lives. And her mother happened to hear that and said, I like that one. And I do believe it was the right answer for her at that moment. And all I can say is praise the Lord. That wasn't me. That was just my opportunity to say something to her. So I came home, hadn't yet picked a sermon topic, but I was kind of waiting for the uh, next edition of the Adventist World to come out. Any of you read this magazine? It should come to most of your homes. Uh, if you're a member of the Adventist Church, it comes once a month. It's the, put out by the Adventist Review, but it's kind of its own separate magazine with a worldwide perspective. And it has a lot of uh, articles about how God is working around the world, uh, issues in the church, um, inspirational, encouraging things. And I know that every month there's a Bible study by Mark Finley in there. And so when I, I've been watching for the magazine. When it came, I opened it up right to that. And I was looking at it as I came in the house, and Linda said to me, what do you have there? And I said, I have my next sermon outline. Because it said, can you trust your conscience? And so I said, thank you, Lord. That's, I think we can work with that. <laughs> so, just seemed to be um, the appropriate thing for the time. Because it's really our conscience that guides our choices and how we listen to those consciences. And what caught my... As he started his study, he, Mark Finley said, I was recently talking to a young man about the importance of making right decisions. I was fascinated with his response. He confidently said, I know right from wrong. My conscience always tells me goes on to say, in a society of ever-changing moral standards, we are often told that the way to get through this morass of confusion is to rely on the compass of our individual conscience. Is our conscience always reliable? Can we trust our conscience in all circumstances? Can our conscience ever lead us in the wrong direction? In this month's Bible study, we will discover the value of a sanctified conscience and the danger of trusting in a conscience that is not under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So what is conscience? One of the definitions I found was that it's an inner feeling or voice viewed as acting as a guide to the rightness or wrongness of one's behavior. But remember, that voice in your head is potentially a part of your line. I think Richard O'Phil wrote that in one of his books. Um, most of us aren't old enough to remember a party line, but I know there's some of you here who do. Back in the days, kids, before everybody had a phone in their pocket, there was phones that you could walk around with that you set in your house, and they were wireless. Before that, the phones were on the wall, and you punched a button. And then before that, there was phones that you dialed. But before that, there were phones, there were a big old box on the wall, and you might see them in a museum sometime, but you would go to them and you kind of ring the line, and that'd get the operator's attention. And the, the problem was that they hadn't figured out how to switch it between uh, everybody's houses using one wire. And so 
they'd have what they'd call a party line. You'd, the line would go down the road and it'd stop at that house and that house and that house. Well, the problem with that is, you know, if you got a phone call, you had to listen for your own special ring. And if somebody else on the line was using the phone, then you couldn't make a phone call. And, but the real danger was that somebody else could be listening in on your phone call. So that wouldn't be a great thing for, like, say, Dr. Kirk when he had his office and somebody wanted to call him up and, and talk to him about a, a problem. So he had to probably pay, pay extra to get a, get a private line. And so as we deal with situations in life, you know, we talk about listening for God's voice, listening to our conscience, but we have to remember that there's somebody else that's listening in on that line and that wants to suggest other bad ideas to us. Even popular culture pictures an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other whispering in your ear. We truly are in a great controversy between God and Satan, with each side doing everything possible to woo us to their side. Some synonyms for conscience are sense of right and wrong, a moral sense, an inner voice, seems like those who study these things that should say that its use in language and writing is declining over time. Maybe people don't like to think about conscience because of its relationship to the concept of guilt. That's the way it's used in a lot of situations. Talk about conscience money, money paid to ease a guilty conscience. Apparently, early in the 1800s, somebody sent $5 to the government because they felt bad because they had cheated on their taxes. And ever since then, the government has maintained this fund for people to do that, you know. And people do send in money every year, millions of dollars, apparently, to, because they, you know, they don't want to stand up and say what they did, but they know they did something and they felt they should send, send in some money to make it right. And that makes them feel better. We talk about the conscience clause. Clause in a contract or contract or law exempting persons with moral scruples, such as Desmond Doss. Talk about being conscience-stricken, greatly troubled or disturbed by the knowledge of having acted wrongfully. It's interesting how sometimes our conscience doesn't get our attention until after we said the thing we shouldn't have said. <laughs> I don't know how that works, but I think it's because the conscience is such a soft voice that we're not listening closely enough. We're not filtering all our thoughts and responses through uh, the Holy Spirit before we open our mouths. But that does tend to make us conscious stricken when we say something that we immediately realize we shouldn't have. We talk about having a clear conscience. And that's a good thing as long as you don't have a seared conscience like the Apostle Paul talks about. Interestingly, Paul is one of the main people who uses the word conscience in the Bible. He actually talks about it quite a bit. The guilty conscience, fairly self-explanatory. Talk about being conscienceless, like a cold-blooded killer that doesn't bother them at all to do what they did. Talk about unconscionable, not guided or controlled by conscience, unscrupulous, not in accordance with what is just or reasonable. So we know that there's problems with the conscience because there's a lot of negative connotations here. But we still ask the question, why can't we just follow our conscience? 
But the trouble with the, someone once said that the trouble with the advice, follow your conscience, is that most people follow it like someone following a wheelbarrow. They direct it wherever they want to go and follow right along behind. So that doesn't, that's a potential problem. Because rationalization, greed, self-interest, fear, and other human emotions influence what we ultimately decide to do. Now, someone also said, once we assuage our conscience by calling something a necessary evil, it begins to look more and more necessary and less and less evil. The Bible talks about that in Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, if we can't follow our conscience, what about the truth? Isn't truth something that we can stick to, follow? There's always the question of what is truth? And even if we know it, are we willing to make the choice to follow it? Because of the same reasons we have trouble following our conscience. This is really a whole other topic in and of itself, but allow me to digress into a short history of truth. In the pre-modern world, that's about before 500 years ago, before about the start of the Reformation with Martin Luther, truth was what the religious authorities said it was. You know, the, you went to the priest, you went to the rabbi, you went to whoever your authority was, and they said, this is the way it is. And you said, okay. And, but then people started to ask questions and became, entered what was known as the modern era. And as with changes in eras, there's usually a lot of turmoil. As we have, know happened with the entering into the Reformation, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, there was a lot of, lot of bloodshed, a lot of wars, uh, strife. Truth in a, the modern era is what the sources say it is. In science, it's the research. We had people saying, no, the earth isn't the center of the, the solar system. The sun is the center of the solar system. And they got into big trouble with the religious authorities because of that. Well, in religion, it was the study of the Bible. And many of you recall Pastor Myers uh, had the, the Blueprint series where he talked about how the Reformers brought back various Bible truths that had been obscured during the pre-modern era between Christ's time and uh, the time of the Reformation. Truths like salvation by faith alone, personal Bible study and prayer, baptism, other truths. And when the Adventists came along in the 1840s and 50s, they were deep Bible scholars. William Miller studied the Bible for, I believe, nine years before he ever started to preach. He didn't just make something up off the top of his head and decide to go talk about it. And they restored a lot of truth. And that is our heritage. That's something to be proud of and to take very seriously. But now, for over 100 years, we have been in another transition between eras, entering into the postmodern world, which 
Postmodern is a big word that we hear a lot, but don't, don't, often don't understand since it's hard to define, and you seem to need a dictionary to read the definition. For instance, in Wikipedia they say, postmodern thought is broadly characterized by tendencies to epistemological and moral relativism, pluralism, irreverence, and self-referentiality. Got that? <laughs> so it was with regard to religion, a postmodern interpretation of religion emphasizes the key point that religious truth is highly individualistic, subjective, and resides within the individual. Basically, in this world that we are coming to live in, and where many of us grew up with a, a modern view of the world, that there was truth, that you could look it up in the Bible, that could be scientifically proven. But unfortunately, our children are growing up in a world where increasingly people are saying truth is relative. Truth is what you think it is. Everyone has their tr- own truth. Uh, you know, it's all good. You do that, I'll do this, we'll all get along. And that's led to confusion. Postmoderns like to talk about spiritual things, but they don't feel the need to commit to any one truth. They think there's a lot of truths and that they're of equal value. It's almost like the Tower of Babel. We're not even speaking the same language. That creates difficulties not only in our personal lives, but in our attempts at evangelism, at our interactions with those that we work with. Because if you take the world that what, the view that whatever your conscience tells you is acceptable is okay, as long as you aren't hurting other people, that's a way to live your life. But is it a safe rock to build your life on? Are you willing to bet your life that that's true? So we come back to our study, and we have a number of texts that we're going to go through here. Can we trust our conscience? As we do this, I just want to keep in mind that there is a key truth in the Bible, and that key truth is that God is love. God has a plan for you, has a plan for me, has a plan for this whole world, and he will bring it to uh, fruition. As Ron said, you look to the back of the book, God wins. So our first... Uh, we mentioned Jeremiah 17.9 already. How does the Bible describe human nature? What is the state of our condition before God? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Anybody have a... And ten... in the. I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So we have a heart problem. And it's not that we're getting chest pain, it's the heart that's in our mind. And so let's look also at Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we have deceitful hearts that 
are headed in the wrong direction. And it hasn't always been that way. God created Adam and Eve in a state of perfection. But once they sinned, their nature's changed. Each one of us is born with a fallen nature, making it easier to do wrong than to do right. So clearly we have a problem. Let's see what Paul said about the state of mind of, of those who have not surrendered their lives to Christ. Let's look at Romans 8, 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So we're not just deceitful, but we're enemies with God in our natural state. Let's look at Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you, made, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So we're, according to Paul, we're in a state of rebellion, not willing to submit to God's laws, and effectively incapable of doing so. And before, But in Ephesians, I see a glimmer of hope. Because as he's talking to them, he says, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. We were the object, we're by nature children of wrath. So he's saying something has changed in you. You used to be this way, but now through the gospel, you have become something different. So... I, I see a definite glimmer of hope here in Ephesians. Since our natures are fallen, and without Christ we have carnal minds, is a conscience unaided by the Holy Spirit a safe guide? Let's look at Hebrews 3.13. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So that suggests to me that we have a chance. We can encourage each other to get on the right track. And we're not, it suggests that we're not hardened at the moment. We are in danger of being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but we're not there yet. And so while we are in today, God is encouraging us to Respond to him. First Timothy four two. This is the one I referred to earlier. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Does being seared sound like a good thing? Does that sound like something good to do to your brain or any part of your body? Sounds very painful and destructive. 
And so if we speak lies and are hypocritical and keep doing that, that will damage us. So we need to be honest with ourselves, honest with God, honest with others, and pray that God will keep us from letting our conscience be seared. Proverbs 14.12 tells us, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So there we're back to the problem of can we trust our conscience? Because so often, something seems right. Seems like that, you know, that just seems like the right thing to do. It feels good. We want to do it. And maybe we can find a way to rationalize it, justify it. But we have to beware that just because it seems right to us doesn't mean that it's a happy way because it will, it potentially will lead to death. Unaided by the Holy Spirit, we are strongly influenced by our own desires, the environment around us, and peer pressure. Mark Finley goes on to say, since our natures are fallen, we have at times hardened our hearts through poor choices. And we, has God left us alone to determine what is right and wrong? Well, let's find some hope in Ecclesiastes 3.11. We had the hope that we weren't necessarily permanently in that state and that we could avoid it. But he has a, even better things in the future. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And he also he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. The, another version says, they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I like that a little bit better. No one can find out, no one can fathom. I guess that word is the same. But so that God has a plan. God has a plan to make everything beautiful in its time. He's put a desire for the future and a hope in us. And that hope is based in, we find the, a reference to that hope in John 1 verse 9. The true light, that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Obviously, this is referring to Jesus, the true light who brought hope and peace into our, into our world. God met us in our fallen t- condition. From the day we were born, His Holy Spirit began to gently guide us to understand His truth and His plan for our lives. If we positively respond to the promptings of His Spirit, we will have a clear sense of His guidance. We don't always have a sense of that guidance at the beginning as as it's happening. But if we look back, we can see God's guidance down through time. Reminds me of John's sermon last week as he reviewed with us how God had worked in his life long before he saw it happening uh, and, and made such a difference in his life. 
So the Holy Spirit wants to help us. And we're going to look at John 14, 16 to 18. And I'm going to look for, see, what role does the Holy Spirit play in sharpening our conscience? And I, Jesus, will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. And here we see Jesus, the Father, and someone else, the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. The Jesus says, you know, I'm going to have to go away here, but I have a plan that's going to be even better. I am going to have someone who's going to be with you 24-7 that will take care of you day by day, moment by moment, if you will only pay attention. It goes on in, in chapter 16, verse 7 of John. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And then verses 13 to 15. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit functions to make God's will and plan known to us. And that's How much better can it get than that? The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, is Jesus' divinely appointed representative to guide us into all truth. If we desire to do God's will and are committed to pleasing Him in all our actions, the Holy Spirit will guide us in our decision-making process. So this very important process that we go through moment by moment, day by day, of choosing... We don't have to do it alone. We have true power of choice with God's help. We're going to turn to Psalms 119 and read just a couple of verses there. In addition to the Holy Spirit, what do we have to guide us as we make decisions, as we go through life? It's not just trying to tune in to that quiet little voice there that, that hopefully as we are, pay more attention we'll, we'll become more aware of. But we actually have something concrete to hold on to as well. Psalms 119.105 tells us, Your word, God's word, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So we have a lamp. In verse 130, The unfurling of your words give light. The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. 
So this is intelligent light. It's not just light shining down on, like the sun on, on the good and the bad. It, it helps those who are willing to be, to be helped. Next verse is 133. Direct my footsteps by your word and let no iniquity have dominion over me. It's kind of like a GPS for our lives in God's Word. We, can, we have guidance to bring us in the right direction. To, and it also is to help to keep us from not letting iniquity overtake us. Verse 140. Your Word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. Another version says, Your promises have been thoroughly tested and your servant loves them. It's good to have a a reliable, pure source of power and information. Finally, verse 160 says, All your words are true. The entirety of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. That's a... It's a big claim for God's word to make, but if we don't believe that if we believe if we believe that God is giving us some untrue words, we have a problem. So we have to be all in with God and His Word and believe that the entirety of your word is truth. And that gives us guidance as well as the Holy Spirit. We cannot trust an unenlightened conscience, but we can trust the guidance of the Holy Spirit through a conscience that has been informed, directed, and educated by God's Word. The Scriptures are the basis for all right decisions. Any inclinations, desires, or tendencies that are not in harmony with the Word of God are not the product of a sanctified conscience. That's sobering, but it gives us an idea of how we should approach our life. We need to compare our impulses, our thoughts, our conclusions about what's right and wrong with God's Word. Do they match up? Do they work? Does that, you say, I can see that in the light of God's Word? Or are we going, no, this voice is telling me to do this, but that really seems contrary to God's Word. This reminds me of something I heard as I walked into Sabbath school class this morning, talking about uh, freedom of choice. Uh, and first thing I heard, I was a little bit late, was Kathy Chambers say, you know, the most important choice we have to make is to follow God, follow Jesus. If we're following Jesus, then all these other little choices will, will naturally come in line. She said it much better than I did, but that was the, the general gist of it, that we make that most important choice to, to realize that God is love and that God has a plan for us and that he's leading us and that we're all in with him. He will help us to make these other choices that will then uh, lead us in the direction that we ultimately want to go and that he wants us to go. So finally, what actions can we take to ensure that we will always have an enlightened conscience guided by the Holy Spirit and informed by the Word of God? 
Let's look at John 12, 35 and 36. Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. As we faithfully walk in the light that God gives us and make positive choices in harmony with His will, His Holy Spirit will guide us in making right decisions. We can have absolute confidence that God will never disappoint us. He will never leave us to the folly of our own ways if we desire to serve Him. He wants to guide us into making right decisions and prompt us through our consciences. The question is always and only this, This is Mark Finley's conclusion. Are we willing to surrender to his way, our way to his, and let him guide us? This reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Desire of Ages, page 668. I'm sure many of you have uh, been blessed by this as well. says, all true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. The will, refined and sanctified, will find its highest delight in doing his service. When we know God as it is our privilege to know him, our life will be a life of continual obedience. Through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, sin will become hateful to us. goes on to say, The Lord will teach us our duty just as willingly as He will teach somebody else. If we come to Him in faith, He will speak His mysteries to us personally. Our hearts will often burn within us as one draws nigh to commune with us as He did with Enoch. Those who decide to do nothing in any line that will displease God will know, after presenting their case before Him, just what course to pursue. And they will receive not only wisdom, but strength. Power for obedience, for service, will be imparted to them as Christ has promised. So, as I think in our own strength, we can't tell what our conscience is telling us, whether it's right or wrong. But as we get to know God better and better, as it is our privilege to know Him, we will be more and more sure. And there's some clues that are given here that we've seen this morning. Is it calling you to follow biblical truth, humility, self-sacrifice, denying self, service to others. That's probably from God. If it's calling you to do something that's bad for someone, some other person, that's probably not from God. Our attitude of response to conscience matters. Does it create feelings of guilt 
or should, I should do this, I should do that. It's possible that you're doing the right thing, but possibly for the wrong reason. Versus the other way to approach your conscience, and that I would pray would be where we, where we end up, is that as we hear the voice of conscience calling to us, that we see that it's a privilege or a blessing to do what it's calling us to do. Things such as daily Bible study and prayer, helping others, gathering together with fellow believers, saying, Lord, what shall I do in the moment? Not just as we're at the end of the day regretting what we've done, but as we're going through it saying, Lord, help me, I need you right now. And then sharing our faith. Say, Lord, what do you want me to say? So as we touched on at the beginning, the key truth of the Bible is that God is love. If that's not true, none of the rest of it matters. But if we do believe that it's true, and I do, then we can know that he won't ask us to do anything too hard for us, that is bad for us, that will hurt others, that is contrary to his word. He will help us to see his hand in history, and he will give us hope for the future. So, can we trust our conscience? I would say yes, if it is a sanctified conscience, one connected to God through daily study of his word, prayer, and living in a loving relationship with him and with others. Thank you. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for Jesus and his mission to this earth. We are thankful that you didn't leave us without a comforter when Jesus had to leave, but that you sent us the Holy Spirit to influence us moment by moment and day by day. We just ask that you will help our consciences to be informed by your word and to be guided and motivated by the influence of the Holy Spirit because we want to have sanctified consciences, consciences that will bring glory to you and be useful to others and that will bring happiness to us all at the same time. So we thank you for that and for the the thoughts that you've given us here this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.